thank you very much. I feel honored to be with you guys this morning. Uh, so when I was little, our church had, so I go to Gateway, and our church had this hallelujah party as an alternative to Halloween. And so it's this thing, I don't know if you've had them before, where everyone gets dressed up, you play lots of games, and you hand out candy instead of going door to door. And unfortunately, this night did not bring out the best in me. It started out with me manipulating my friends into letting me be little Bo Peep and them being the little sheep. And it only got worse when we played the balloon stomping game. So in this game, everyone has a balloon tied with a, a little string or whatever to your ankle and you have to run around in a certain area and stomp on everyone's balloons and pop them. And the last person standing with an unpopped balloon wins the game and the candy. So the one rule was you weren't allowed to hold on to anyone or touch anyone because it was an advantage when you were trying to stomp on their balloon and that was considered cheating. So I'm a pretty competitive person and I really like to win and Paul's laughing because we have competed numerous times in old youth days and whatever. Um, and when there's a candy prize at stake, well, you can only imagine how much more competitive I am. So I went in hard. Despite the little Bo Peep dress, I was running and I was stomping on those balloons. And I came up to one of the boys in my grade and without even thinking, I held his shoulder and crushed his balloon. I felt pretty good about myself because I succeeded and before I could run away to stomp on another poor kid's balloon, this boy sucker punched me right in the stomach. I was, I was pretty shocked, needless to say, and honestly, I don't remember who won that night because I was too winded to keep playing. Um, and I couldn't believe that this kid had just punched me, a boy punching a girl. But I don't really blame him now that I look back at it because I was a manipulative, cheating, and now crying little Bo Peep, and I fully deserved it. I'd love to say that I learned my lesson and never cheated in another game again, but then we'd have to add lying to my list of sins, so we're not going to do that. Today we're going to be looking at a man in the Bible who was competitive from the womb, a man who lied, manipulated, and cheated his way through a good part of his life, and a man to whom I and maybe a few of you others can relate to a little more than we'd like. We're going to see how this cheater's life can change in a moment. And if you haven't guessed by now, this cheater's name is Jacob. Before we read, though, I'd like to give a little context about who Jacob is and where he is in life at this point. Jacob was the son of Isaac, and he was the grandson of Abraham, the father of Israel. And to Jacob's dismay, he was the younger of twin boys. He was said to be a quiet man, dwelling in tents, and unmarried. So commentators say that by chapter 28, he was actually probably about 77 years old and still living at home with his parents. So nowadays, I think we'd call him a homebody and a mama's boy. But this mama's boy knew what he wanted in life. He was an achiever. And some say that he would have likely been competitive, would have likely desired greatly to be valued in life, admired, distinguished, worth something in his life. He was constantly trying to climb this ladder of success and importance, even from the womb. He held on to his older brother Esau's heel, trying to get out before him, I think. And this is why he was called Jacob, which means he takes by the heel or he cheats. 
And wow, did he ever live up to that name. Jacob cheated his family at least two times from what we know. He first tricked his older brother into selling him his birthright, which was a big deal back then. And then he deceived his father and cheated his brother out of the big blessing that was meant to be bestowed upon the oldest child. And this blessing was, was to carry on the chosen line of Israel. And it was such a big deal that he did this that Esau was so angry he was ready to kill him. And so Jacob fled for his life. He left the promised land and went back to a place called Haran. And he left his entire family because it wasn't safe for him anymore. And this is where we meet our very sad character in chapter 28. So we're reading from Genesis 28, 10 to 22. If you have a Bible, you can turn there or I have it on the screen in uh, ESV. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones from the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, which actually originally means stood beside him. And said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. God, I thank you so much for the privilege of your word and being able to read it in a public place. God, I thank you for the privilege of being able to hear your voice, each, each one of us individually hearing you as you speak to us. God, I thank you for that. And I pray that you would open our ears and hearts to hear you this morning as you've already been doing. And I pray that every word that comes out of my mouth would be only yours in Jesus' name. Amen. The one thing I want to emphasize today is that God meets you where you're at, but he doesn't leave you there. We're going to look at how God shows us this through this story uh, in Genesis 28, and it starts with God's introduction to Jacob. So Jacob had just lied, and he just cheated, and now he's running for his life. This homebody, mama's boy, was for the first time ever alone running in an unfamiliar land, running from consequences. He was likely scared 
feeling a little guilty, feeling a bit of regret maybe, or a lot. He was probably confused and uncertain of the future. He had grown up his whole life striving to be someone, to make a name for himself, to outshine his older, macho, expert hunter of a brother. He definitely knew about God and believed in the power of God's blessing, but he had only ever heard about him through his parents, his father, his grandfather. And now he schemed his whole life to get what he wants, but he's, all he's got now is a staff and a rock. He's been stripped of all of his schemes. Can any of you relate to Jacob's situation here? Maybe you've grown up in the shadow of an older brother or older sister, or maybe even the shadow of your parents, feeling like you have to strive and fight to make a name for yourself or make a different name that, that might be more respected. I'm the youngest of four daughters, and my three older sisters are pretty amazing. They're strong, talented, smart, funny, kind, beautiful, independent women. And I think some of us youngest children can develop what I like to call youngest or younger sibling syndrome. It's this thing where we strive to outshine our siblings in some way. If we can be different or better at one thing than them, that's good enough to step out of their shadow. So for me, one of the, one of the ways it's manifested was in height. I wanted to be the tallest out of my sisters. And, uh, oh yeah, there it is. And um, Elise, she's the one in the green, was the one to beat at 5'10 and a half. Well, I really hoped for this, and I even prayed for this. I kept asking my mom, do you think I'll beat her? Like, do you think I'll maybe just be even a tiny bit taller? And my mom, honestly, was in more reality than I was. My hopes were dashed when I stopped growing and settled in at about five, seven, and three quarters. Those three quarters are very important. The smallest in our family, back then and now. Later, I realized that that's not actually such a bad thing when it comes to finding genes. So I'm not that sad about it anymore. But height is just a very small, minimal example. And maybe you're out there like Jacob and I, striving to be something, to make a name for your something in, a little, in something a little bit more important than height. Um, striving to stand out and be noticed, be different. Or hey, maybe you can relate to Jacob's mistakes. Maybe you've made some pretty big ones and you're running. Either physically or just spiritually. Jacob probably thought that this was it for him, that he'd ruined his life, his father was angry at his deception, his brother wanted to kill him, and he just left his mother, who was probably the only one in that area who had some grace for him still. I bet he laid his head on that rock, feeling full of regret, fear, and hopelessness. And maybe you're in a similar position. You've made a mistake, you've gotten in pretty deep, and you're full of that same regret, or fear, or hopelessness. And these are the moments in which God loves to step in and encounter his children. The moments in which he loves to introduce himself or reintroduce himself to us. And this is Jacob's moment. He is completely at the end of himself. And sure enough, God steps in and meets our sad, lonely, afraid friend where he's at. And he introduces himself through this dream. 
He shows Jacob a ladder going from heaven to earth, and he stands beside Jacob and says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. You see, at this point, from what we have read, Jacob never actually met God personally. He hadn't met him up until this point which means he'd heard of God through his father and his grandfather, but for all he knew, they could be making this stuff up. And now God steps in and says, Hey, I am this God that you have heard about your entire life. I am real. God chose to personally introduce himself to this undeserving, guilty, broken man. And I think what's so beautiful is he didn't wait for Jacob to get his life together a little bit more. He actually chose to personally introduce himself when Jacob was at his absolute worst. He knew the depths of Jacob's sin and doubt, yet he still wanted relationship with him. And he knew that Jacob needed a powerful, undoubtable encounter with himself in order to believe and he gave it to him. And God wants to give each one of us that a personal encounter with him, the one in which he introduces himself to us. And our moments or our points of need make us aware of how desperate we really are for him. And this is when God steps in and he meets us where we're at, but he doesn't leave us there. And some of you this morning, I'm actually really happy the older kids are in in the service with us because some of you know a lot about God. You've grown up with him your whole life. But you don't maybe actually know him. Who is this God that you've heard about day after day after day? He's your parents' God. But is he your God? God wants to introduce himself personally to you this morning. He knows what you need to see and what you need to hear in order to actually believe in him. And he wants to give you that this morning. And some of you maybe need to be reintroduced You've known him, but either you've run away or maybe you've become really discouraged and disillusioned and and disheartened and you're doubting. Well, sometimes our greatest desperation actually becomes our greatest encounter. And God wants to meet you in that this morning. So what was God's message? He personally introduces himself to Jacob. What was the message that he had for Jacob in this moment? What did the dream mean? Well, he goes on, God does, uh, to personally, after he introduces himself, personally give Jacob the promise that his forefathers, his dad, his grandpa, had held on to and pursued their whole lives. And he says to Jacob, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to the land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
in Jacob's absolute worst, God extends this promise that had previously been for his fathers to Jacob himself. And I want to talk for a second about the significance of the actual dream, what the ladder meant, and two things about it. God uses this ladder in, in this whole promise to Jacob to show Jacob first that he's real, that there is actually access between heaven and earth, and that God is in some far-off, distant being up in heaven, judging and condescending. No, he's actually personal, and he was right there with Jacob, standing next to him. And he wanted to show Jacob, hey, I'm real, and you can have direct access to me. Because Jesus actually explains later to a disciple named Nathaniel in John 1:51 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God, do we recognize this, ascending and descending on the Son, on the Son of Man, the ladder. Jesus is directly referring back to this ladder that Jacob saw in his dream, explaining that he, Jesus, is the ladder. That through his death and resurrection on the cross, we can have access to God. We can have eternal relationship with him. Now, Jacob wouldn't have necessarily understood all of this yet because Jesus hadn't, wasn't on earth yet. But what he would have understood is that God was real. He wasn't some distant, far-off being of his, that, that his parents believed in, but he was right then and there personal with Jacob. That's what he would have understood. I've known God uh, since I was five years old, and I have never seen angels. I have never heard the audible voice of God, and I haven't had a super cool dream like this with ladders and neat things, or God standing right next to me, speaking to me. But I cannot count the number of times when I've read something in my Bible that has pierced my soul in the situation I've been in, speaking to thoughts and, situ and, and my situation, speaking to thoughts that I didn't even know I had. Or the number of times in which I've prayed for something seemingly impossible and God has answered my prayer. Or the number of times in which I've been so consumed with anxiety or, or fear and suddenly this thought or scripture or song just pierces through the cobwebs and brings peace. And I know that God is real because without his work in my life, I would be depressed. I would be burning out from stress and anxiety and I would for sure not be standing up here. And I may not have had a dream with a ladder or with angels, but I have seen and experienced that my God is real. And I've experienced his voice and learned to discern it through scripture and through thoughts in, in ways that have made him real to me. And I've seen his active work in my life and in the life of others. And this God, my God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, wants to show you how real he is. However you need him to do that. Maybe you need a dream with angels. Or maybe it's a scripture in the morning. He wants to show you how real he is, just like he did for Jacob. 
So the latter is a symbol of Jesus proving to Jacob that God is real. But I also think it was another way of God speaking metaphorically to Jacob. You see, Jacob was pretty used to ladders. He had been trying to climb this ladder of success his whole life. And suddenly in the dream, there's this ladder. And I bet you Jacob was thinking, oh, sweet. I'm going to climb up this ladder to get to heaven. This is my ticket. This is going to save me from my terrible situation. But God chose this ladder to be in the dream. And, And I think it's as if God was standing next to Jacob saying, hey, look. There's a different ladder that matters a lot more, and it goes to heaven, and you actually don't climb it. He didn't allow Jacob to climb that ladder in the dream. I think he was standing next to Jacob saying, hey, look, there's a ladder that matters more. You don't climb it. I actually meet you at the bottom. You don't climb it to get to me. I meet you at the bottom of it. And I give you the blessing of this access to God, to me, the blessing of relationship with me. I think God was telling Jacob to stop climbing ladders and to receive the free gift of relationship with himself. God met Jacob where he was at in all of his mess But he didn't leave him there. He offered him the free gift of relationship, covenant, and blessing with him to a man who didn't deserve it. And as I've mentioned a bit earlier, I can relate quite a bit to Jacob uh, because I too am an achiever. Competitive, desperate to be worth something, to be valued by society. And I thought for some time that I had to strive to earn God's love and to earn God's favor. So I had to work hard and do everything right and become a, a really perfect person. In fact, I remember some, some days thinking, oh, I did so many things wrong today. Tomorrow, I'm gonna fix this, this, and this. And it was all about me. I'm gonna do this to become more lovable to God. And this actually applied a lot to my grades in school, which caused me a lot of anxiety back then. I felt that if I didn't get the grades at school, Uh, I wasn't worth much. And I'll never forget what my dad told me once. I was stressing about an exam to him one day. And he said, hey, Beth, just remember uh, that your salvation doesn't rest on your exam mark. And it sounds so obvious. But to me in that moment, I was like, oh, oh, right. I have eternal life, and whether I get a C or an A-plus on this exam, that's not going to impact things. And this hit me so hard because it's applied to a lot more than just school, especially in the last few years when I've still striven at times to fix my character. If I can only just surrender 100%, if I can deal with every area of fear, if I can deal with every area of pride, then I'll be more loved by God, then he'll be able to bless me. But all of this, grades, personal perfection, it's all striving ladder theology. And God doesn't like ladder theology. The truth is salvation and grace require no striving. We have salvation through Jesus, the ladder. The only ladder theology that God likes is Jesus being the ladder. 
There's no other ladder or other thing that we have to climb in order to achieve perfection or relationship with God or receive his blessing because we already have it. And it's not about deserving it, whether we deserve it or not, or earning it. We can't. It's a free gift. And God meets us where we're at, at the bottom of our ladders, and he doesn't leave us there. And you know what really rocks me? Is that this gracious God who met Jacob, stood next to him, told him all these beautiful things, is actually the same God who speaks to us. The same God who stood next to Jacob in that moment so many years ago is the same God who sits with you when you're reading your Bible. The same God who speaks to you as you're driving your car in terrible roads. The same God who speaks to you as you head to work. The same God who encountered scared, lonely, broken Jacob wants to encounter you. So how did Jacob respond? Well, God says all of this. Jacob wakes up and says, whoa, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he takes the rock that he laid his head on, he sets it up as a pillar, and then he pours oil over it and calls the place Bethel, meaning house of God. And then he makes this promise to the Lord, saying, if God will go with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I can come again to my Father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now at first this response seems pretty good. Uh, Jacob's recognizing that he's met the one true God and he makes this vow to serve him, but actually only if God follows through with his side of the bargain. And to some extent, there's a measure of faith here. That's a good start. But I want to explain why it's not actually a deep response of surrender and trust in God. In Genesis 26, 23 to 25, God appears to Isaac, Jacob's father, with a very similar message to the one he gave to Jacob. And Isaac's response is to build an altar. Jacob's response, however, was to build a pillar. So is there a difference? Yes, there actually is, big one. Jacob built a few pillars in his lifetime, and it's really, I think, important to look at what those pillars meant when he built them, because that gives us context for the pillar that he made for the Lord. The first pillar he made was a pillar to act as a divider between his land and his very difficult father-in-law's land. So he and his father-in-law made a vow or a promise to not cross that division there uh, into each other's land because they had some serious relational difficulties. <laughs> and they built a pillar there to remind them of that promise. So the pillar was a reminder. Then, for the kids here, what that would maybe look like now is in your bedroom, if you share a room, putting a skipping rope to mark your territory and say, you can't cross my half, you can't cross my half. The skipping rope was like the pillar, okay? Then the other pillar that Jacob built was on top of his wife's, his wife Rachel's grave. So it was a memorial to remember his wife Rachel. 
So a pillar was a trophy or a m memorial, a thing to remind people of what happened in that place. And that's great. Jacob was remembering that God s encountered him. But a pillar was just that, a reminder. An altar, on the other hand, like the one his father Isaac built, was an act of surrender, of worship. An altar signifies sacrifice, surrendering fully to God and trusting him. So Jacob remembered, but he didn't actually fully surrender to God and worship this God, making him his own God. Not just the God of his parents, but his own God. And God actually feels so strongly about not using pillars that in Deuteronomy 16, he calls them Canaanite worship and says, do not build pillars. And after Jacob builds this pillar, he makes a vow and he says, if you do all of this, God, then you will be my God. So Jacob met the God of his forefathers and instead of choosing to make him his God, he sets up a wager or a bargain with him. And again, Jacob expresses some faith in this because he's opening himself up to God and, and seeing what God will do. That's great. But he actually could have gone a lot further in his surrender. He was still trying to hold on to some control. He couldn't believe yet that God was the one he said he was and that he would do what he said he'd do. And the thing is, he had actually said, the first thing he said was, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. So Jacob had the revelation that God was real. He knew it. He knew God was real and he knew that God had clearly spoken to him. But that word of God wasn't enough for him. And he was willing to make God his God, but only on his terms. And so Jacob left that day believing that God was real, but choosing to still strive and climb up the ladder on his own. And unfortunately, Jacob spent the next 22 years of his life learning submission and surrender. And it was a painful, frustrating, lonely process that we read about in the next few chapters. And it's not until decades later that Jacob returns and in Genesis 33:20s erected an altar, it says, and called it El Elohi Israel. And at this point in scripture, God had actually renamed Jacob to the name Israel. And so 22 years and a whole lot of trials later, Jacob surrendered. He finally built that altar. And he chose God as not just the God of his dad and his grandpa, but his God. The meaning of that altar name is the God of Israel. His name was Israel. And so he chose that day to make God his own God. The cheater had finally changed and was beginning to truly prosper. Maybe you're in a similar position. You know God is real, but you're still trying to hold on to control. You're still striving to do things alone, to climb the ladder on your own. And you haven't been able to just take that extra step and trust that God is who he says he is. 
But you know what is the most comforting about this? Is that even after Jacob made this conditional bargain with God, before he actually truly changed, even when he, after he chose to keep God an arm's distance away, God met him. He still met him. He still extended grace. He didn't retract his promise or his offer and say, eh, Jacob, you built a pillar. You were supposed to build an altar, so I'm going to find someone else. God didn't do that. Instead, he actually protected Jacob all those 22 years. His kindness actually led Jacob to repentance there to build that altar in the end. And he still encountered him. He still blessed him. And he still did all that he said he would do. And the same is true for you. Whatever place you're in, whether you're building pillars or whether you are building altars or maybe you're not even there yet and you haven't even started to, to recognize God's realness, whatever place you're in, God wants to meet you where you're at and he doesn't want to leave you there. And our choice is how we respond. We can build the pillars Remember what he said and acknowledge that he's real, but attempt to hold on to control. Or we can fully surrender and trust him. We can build altars in our hearts. And what I mean by that is just surrendering to him, giving up control. Trusting he is who he says he is and still will do what he said a long time ago and what he's saying right now he will do. I want to finish by getting a little bit more specific with my own personal Jacob story. Back in university, I was working multiple jobs to pay for school. Uh, but even still, by the end of my first semester and third year, I just didn't have quite enough to pay for my second semester. And I'd applied for all these scholarships, and, and I was waiting desperately to hear uh, whether I was going to get them or not. And I was praying hard. And like Jacob, I had striven. Or I had been striving for a while, and I'd come to the end of this ladder. I'd done all I could do, and I actually started to doubt God. Would he really come through for me and do what he said he'd do? And then one night, I had this dream, and in this dream, I saw two papers, and I could only see what was written on the first one, but the first one said Tobias. And I knew that they were scholarships, these two papers. So I woke up pumped because I thought, oh, this is a direct message from the Lord. I need to look up to buy a scholarships, apply for one, and then get the money. This is going to be great. So I immediately Googled to buy a scholarships, to buy a university, whatever I could find, and nothing came up. And I was like, well, what was the point of that? So I told my mom later about this dream, and she said that names and dreams actually often mean something, that you're supposed to look up the meaning of the name. So I looked up the meaning of the name Tobias, and it means the goodness of God. And right away, I started to cry at our supper table because I realized that God had promised me something so profound, that he had given me scholarships to his goodness, and the funny thing is, we all have scholarships to his goodness, right? That's pretty obvious, but I just didn't believe it until that moment. And, it, and he spoke to me just like he had spoken to Jacob, using terms and, you know, he, he showed Jacob ladders. Jacob understood ladders. He showed me scholarships. I understood scholarships. He speaks to us in ways we understand. And sure enough, God came through. And he did every year of school, providing thousands of dollars for me. And I finished five years of university without any student debt. 
And since then, I have been through a few tough years, especially my last year of university. I went through a breakup, had a bunch of friends move away, close family moved away, and I went through a time in which I really started to question God's goodness again, except worse than ever before. And I believed he was real, but I honestly didn't know anymore if he was good. And I thought this whole scholarship goodness thing, maybe that was just for the university phase. What, what does that mean now? I had climbed this spiritual ladder my whole life, I felt like. I had been striving, and, and it seemed like it was all for nothing. Did serving God really matter if, if unfortunate and, and sad things happened anyways? If things didn't go how I wanted them to, did it all matter? So I avoided God for a bit. And one night when I was pretty deep in sadness and anger and frustration, Jesus met me. And he showed me in a vision this altar. And he showed that he himself laid down with me on the altar as I surrendered. That he had surrendered first in, in going to earth and going to the cross. And that he was with me, that he would keep me, and that he would do what he said he'd do. And this encounter changed my life because I had built pillars before. I remembered God. I thanked him for my scholarships. I thanked him whenever I was praying for other provision for that. But the pillar didn't actually mean a whole lot when things got really tough. And this time, the test of my trust in God's goodness got a lot more real and I, it was the point where I had to build an altar in my heart and say, you know what, no matter what circumstances I'm facing, your word is actually enough. That word you gave me back in first year, third year university, that's enough. The word you've given me now is enough. No longer will I build pillars to remember your goodness. I will build altars to rest in it. And God met me in all of my mess that night, but he didn't leave me there. He brought me to a point of desperation in order to encounter me and change me and make himself more real to me than he'd ever been before. And he's continued to do so time and time again, reminding me when I've gone after a pillar or not even there and when I need to build an altar to him and surrender. So where are you at? Are you at the end of the ladder you've been trying to climb? Are you tired? Are you lonely? Are you frustrated? Have you been running or making deals with God, making promises on your own terms? Have you been building pillars instead of altars, acknowledging God but never truly surrendering? It's time to stop running and it's time to receive his grace. He's meeting you at the bottom of that ladder. It's time to stop remembering and start surrendering. Remembering is good. We want to do that. It helps us surrender, but we can't just stop there. God wants to meet you this morning and this evening and every day after. He wants to do the same for you that he did for me, that he did for Jacob, because he's the same God. He wants to meet you where you're at, but he doesn't want to leave you there.
was listening to a, a podcast this week on preaching, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you in on a secret. Um, one, one of the things that, that the podcast was talking about, the importance um, in preaching is allowing the people to have room for application in their lives. And I, and I think that Beth has done that this morning. But I, wanna, I want to right now leave a few minutes here where we don't just go having heard this, but now we actually have opportunity to sit and to hear from the Lord what he wants to apply to our lives. What is he saying to me? So I want to, as, as Jen plays, I want to give us three three questions to put before the Lord and and to allow him to speak to us. One is, is where, where am I struggling with control in my life? Where is God calling me to surrender? The second question is, am I building pillars or altars in my life? Am I putting a condition on my willingness to follow God? Am I willing to build a pillar, but there's a condition there? God, if you do this or this or this, then, then, I'm, then I'm good with following you. Three, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. It's so true. And God does meet us where we're at. And... He doesn't leave us there. Absolutely, amen. Where do I, asking yourself this question, where do I need to move towards God this week? So make it, make it God, what do, you, what do you want me to do this week to move towards you? Where I, there's something in my life where I am struggling with pillars and altars. Where do you want me to move to encounter you? So let's let's allow Lord to speak to us. Let's let's quiet our hearts. If you want to journal, whatever. If you want to just pray and and allow the Lord to apply this to our hearts.